hey, it's Ian Altman. People would come to me and say, can you build a community where we can interact with other people who are applying same-side selling to their business? And that's what we built with the Same-Side Selling Academy. Best of all, right now, it's totally free. So go to samesidesellingacademy.com, sign up there, and be a part of the community. And just, I encourage you to be an active member of that community. I look forward to seeing you there. Today's guest is Chris Orlob. Chris is the Senior Director of Product Marketing at Gong.io. They're probably best known as being the conversation intelligence platform for sales. We're going to talk about the biggest misconceptions people have about sales performance. What is driving the tenure of VPs of sales to be shorter rather than longer? What behaviors top sales performers have versus the middle of the pack? And when you should get teams of people involved in sales opportunities and when you shouldn't. It's really a fun interview. You're going to learn a ton from Chris Orlov. Chris, welcome to the show. Ian, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to talking. Well, good. So share with our audience something surprising that they may not know about you. Uh, there, there are a few things here. I'll, I'll try to share two. So I am very into business, and I look that way on the surface. But in a previous life, I was a hardcore metal drummer. So the type, you know, where there's like screaming vocals and double bass and all that kind of stuff. I was like this punk kid growing up until I was like 20 years or so. I had the whole outfit together with the pierced ears and the long hair. And now if you looked at me and met me for the first time, you would be pretty shocked that that was part of my past. Um, especially if you know like what I'm into now, which is like technology and machine learning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, another second one, a little more embarrassing is I once passed out midway through the air while skydiving. And apparently that's more common than uh, what you would believe, but actually happened to me. I've got photo and video evidence to prove it. So what happens? So uh, th th this is what they, they told me. I don't know if this is what they told me to make me feel better or if this is based on truth, but um, – they told me that the harness around my leg was too tight, which is where one of your key arteries are, and it just kind of cut off my circulation. So I was totally conscious during the free fall, which, by the way, a lot less adrenaline packed than you would believe if you've never been skydiving before. It's more surreal than it is like adrenaline packed. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's The adrenaline part happens, at least in my experience, when they pull the parachute and start doing like parachute spirals. So we did the first spiral. It was an absolute blast, um, very adrenaline-packed. And then we did the second one. And my vision started to go black, and I started to get dizzy. And the guy asked me if I wanted to do a third one. And next thing I knew, I woke up on the ground. I had big scabs on my knees and a headache because I'm, I'm pretty tall, and I was much taller than the tandem guy who was on my back. And we had a pretty rough landing, which is also on video, like I said. But that's what they told me. Hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully they weren't laughing in the background as they <laughs> after that whole occurrence happened. I question anybody who jumps out of a perfectly good airplane. As you should. As you should. <laughs> I'm a very questionable person. But I was a metal drummer as well. So it's odd because people rarely will say, oh, yeah, the guy writes a column in Forbes and Inc. and you know, <laughs> ran these companies and runs a podcast. And But I didn't have the ears pierced, but I had the, the bad long hair and this kit that was 
way oversized for what any human being would need to play drums today. Oh, man. Well, it looks like you and I are going to have a fun conversation then. <laughs> uh, looks like this conversation's probably going to go offline, too. You, next time you're out in San Mateo, let's get a jam session going. Right. You know what? I don't think I can play anymore. It's just, you know, I've tried. It's just kind of ugly. Let's, let's dive into what our audience is probably most interested in, which is I want to talk about sales performance and some of the insights that you have. So what's the biggest mistake or misconception that people have when it comes to their top performers versus the rest of their performers in a sales organization? I would say the biggest misconception is how painful the gap between those two groups are to the organization as a whole. So I think every sales leader listening is probably familiar with the like performance bell curve where you have like this, this head of the bell curve where 10 or 20% of your top performers live. Uh, 60% of your reps are make up the middle of the bell curve where they're, you know, operating at 80 or 90% of quota. And then you have the low performers. And while most sales leaders are very familiar with that problem, they're not really familiar with how painful it is to an organization because there is a huge opportunity cost if the majority of your reps are only operating at you know below par, below quota, because every deal that comes into your pipeline and that is handed over to a quote-unquote middle-of-the-pack rep um, could have been handled in a much more effective way. And the deals that your middle of the pack do close, uh, they typically come with longer sales cycles, uh, lower average selling prices, and as a result, your cost of revenue starts to soar. Now, one of the things that I would point out is even though sales leaders are keenly aware of this performance gap problem between your top reps and everybody else, and it's been a problem everybody's been aware of for years, you'd think we have made progress against that problem. But that's not the case. In 2011, 63% of sales reps on the average B2B sales team met or exceeded quota. And today that number is down to 50%. So we have somehow managed to shave 13% off of that number. So this gap between the two groups is widening. And now the last thing I'll say about this before I kind of uh, toss the tennis ball back to your side of the court is there is a trend that has happened in parallel with the trend I just talked about, and it is the dwindling tenure of the VP of sales. Back in 2010, it was 26 months on average. And today in 2017, the average VP of sales lasts only 19 months. And while I can't totally prove causation between these two trends, they're in perfect unison. They're in perfect parallel. And I think anybody who's been in sales leadership for more than a few years is going to admit that those two trends are pretty strongly intertwined. Yeah, you know what? It, it makes perfect sense because guess what? If I have a whole bunch of people aren't performing and aren't not hitting their number, um, we know the sacrificial lamb is probably going to be. Yeah, <laughs> the, the chopping block is right on the VP of sales. Exactly. And so – in the research that you've done, what are some of the patterns that you've identified that are the, the kind of root causes of this? Well, here's the big one. If you've followed Gong before, you're probably familiar with the research we've put out. Uh, we analyze sales conversations, like massive amounts of them in aggregate anonymously to identify what's working and what's not. And these are typically recorded and transcribed sales conversations. We pick apart the patterns that are working and 
the patterns that are not working and we turn them into articles to just kind of tell the world. We've also analyzed research that has nothing to do with sales conversations. So this would be like activity metrics that reps engage in, like how many hours they work or how many calls they make or anything else like that. And what we found is that the difference between top performing reps and average performing reps almost always comes down to how they conduct their sales conversations. Every time we run a research project on what these two groups are doing differently during their sales conversations, there are always very stark, gaping differences in what they're doing. And in almost all of the research we've poured over, that has nothing to do with sales conversations, these like non-conversation factors. There are usually very small differences, if any, between top reps and average performers. So for example, here's just you know one data point. We found that top performers, by and large, quote unquote, discuss pricing during the 38 to 46 minute window during their sales demos. Uh, They almost all do that, whereas average performers, they kind of sporadically talk price. There's no like average time window where they address price. Um, It just kind of happens whenever it happens throughout a sales demo. And this is like specific to tech companies. This is why I'm using the term demo. Um, there are other stats that are industry specific, but that's just you know one example to illustrate stark differences between how top reps conduct sales conversations and how middle performing reps conduct sales conversations. Do you find that the top performing reps, do you then ask them and they say, well, yeah, because we don't talk price early because first we want to make sure that we understand whether or not the solution's a good fit, we understand this, we understand that. Once we agree on all those things, then we talk price, but not beforehand. And we don't wait too late because then we, we might spend too much time with a client and it's not a good fit. So once we hit that milestone, that's when we talk about price. So yes, they'll say that if you know what you're looking for. So in this case, like the language you just used and the question you asked, you know what you were looking for. You were saying, hey, Mr. Top Sales Rep, uh, do you talk price toward the end of the call? And if so, why? And if not, why not? But the problem is sometimes you don't know what you're looking for. And if you just ask a top rep, what are you doing differently than you know your average performing peers? They're not really going to be able to tell you because they don't have the context of knowing what their average performing peers are doing. They typically just assume everybody's conducting sales conversations the same way they are. So when you ask what makes you a great sales rep, Yes, some some of them are going to be able to give you good answers, and that's you know a question worth asking them. But most of the time, they're lacking the context. They don't know what to compare their sales conversations to. And I wonder how much of it is. And I've I've got a theory on this. How often do you find out that the top performing rep may do things right, but may not be intentionally doing those things? They just happen to do it, and then once you point it out to them, all of a sudden they say, oh, so that's why I blew this one deal. It's like consciously competent versus unconsciously competent, right? Correct. Um, I think this is just a guess. This is totally based on experience. I have no data to support this, but I would guess about half of all top-performing reps are unconsciously competent, and the other half are consciously competent, and usually they are people who used to be middle-of-the-pack reps, And they just kind of made a decision one day that they were going to become highly successful in sales. They did everything they could. And lo and behold, one day they woke up as a top performing rep. Those types of people usually know exactly what they're doing 
at exactly what point in a call they're doing it and why they're doing it. And they can explain in very detailed ways the methods behind their madness. But to your point, yes, there are a lot of just kind of quote unquote natural salespeople who are very, very good, who can't really point out what they're doing until you point it out to them and they can kind of confirm or deny whether or not it's true. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously I work with quite a few sales professionals and and people in sales leadership. And oftentimes they'll get someone and say, well, so-and-so's pretty good. And then you talk to them and you'll watch them go through an interaction with a prospect. And you'll say, wow, I thought it was really great the way you did X. And they look at you and they say, what are you talking about? And they have no idea that they're doing something that is actually a great habit and a great behavior that builds trust, that helps the client see the value. And they just don't even know that they're doing it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a problem for like the average performing rep too, right? Because if you're an average rep and you just have this burning desire to become a top performing rep, one of the best things you can do is mimic the behaviors of the top performing reps. But a lot of the times you're not going to know what the behaviors are that you should be mimicking, first of all. But the second part is you usually don't have access to what they're doing. Um, you know, if you're a new rep, you might have the opportunity to quote unquote shadow a few live sales calls during boot camp. But sitting on, on one or two sales calls to get a sense of what makes a rep successful and understanding what actually makes them successful can be two different things. What they do on one or two calls can sometimes be a fluke. What they do consistently to drive success is often only going to be found if you can you know, figure out what these people are doing consistently across many calls. So in the research you have, how much of an impact is activity, meaning number of calls, number of meetings, that side of it? I want to say there is zero impact, but with a qualifier. And here's what I mean. There's no consistency or pattern among top reps or average reps in terms of their activity or behaviors, meaning there are top reps who work 80 hours a week and there are top reps who work 30 hours a week. There are top reps who make a ton of calls, do a ton of presentations, a ton of discovery calls, and there are top reps who do very few. Ditto for middle performing reps. Um, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. There are hard workers and there are lazy workers. There are people who make a lot of calls. There are people who make very few calls. So that's why we're so fascinated with the research that we do is because it gives us some sense of certainty that there is a difference between top reps and middle of the pack. There's no rhyme or reason that we've been able to find as far as behaviors that lie outside of the sales conversation but when you analyze their sales conversations with machine learning, like at a large scale, you almost always find a difference between the two. And so for the top performing reps, I'm curious what sort of patterns and habits you see that tend to move the needle consistently across the board. And I don't want to bias it because there's obviously some concepts that I teach that, that I believe will be reflected in this, but I don't want to skew the results. So I'm going to hold that back. Sure. So I want to give one caveat is it's going to differ depending on the company. We have kind of like this aggregate research. Um, for the most part, it's like generically applicable. But I would also, as much as I love this research, I would also take it with a mild grain of salt because 
you know, your specific sales process could be a little bit different. Here's one example. We analyzed about 500,000 discovery calls. Um, so we segment the research that way. You know, we analyze it by call stage and call type. And some of the differences were top reps were asking more questions during their discovery calls than their average performing peers were. That's no secret. I think everybody's going to get that. But one of the interesting patterns was we found that top performing reps evenly distribute the questions they ask throughout the conversation, whereas top performing reps, again, on average, kind of front load their discovery calls. They ask the majority of their questions within like the first 12 or 15 minutes of the call, almost as if they're working their way through like a discovery call checklist of questions they prepared. And then they ask fewer and fewer questions as the call progresses. So that's like a couple examples there. Um, Another example is the technology that we use to conduct this research is able to identify topics that were discussed throughout the call. And top performing reps ask 41% more questions during pain and problem related topics than their average performing peers who typically ask questions that are a little more generically defined. One of the concepts that I teach pretty often is it doesn't matter conceptually what someone's trying to solve if the problem isn't worth solving. Yes. I often teach people, look, so someone says, hey, we're interested in this this thingamajigger that you guys have. Great. So what's the issue that prompted a search for that? And what happens if you don't solve that? And once we get to that, what happens if you don't solve it? All you're trying to do is be convinced that the problem is worth solving. And then if we understand the impact of not solving that and what that costs, and then what the results look like if we're successful, then someone says, wow, this problem is really a big deal for me, and I believe that you can give me the outcome I need. And that's when people are way more comfortable doing business with people. So so I'm, I'm glad that you said they speak 41% more about the pain or the problems that people are experiencing. Is that right? Yeah. Um, they totally agree with just about every or everything you just said there. So you know, asking about the implications of a problem and the consequences to help drive urgency. Of course, you know, this is stuff that is so specific that quantitative research like what we've done can't necessarily pick that apart. But um, sure. from experience, from guys like you and guys like me and everybody listening here, uh, definitely true. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those things where. It's interesting because often the middle performer says, well, but I already have a pretty good idea of how this impacts them. And I'll often say to these people, well, look, so when your client is convincing you that this is a big deal, who else are they convincing? They're convincing themselves. So if you don't have the conversation, if you don't ask the question, then you may be convinced, but they're not. So you need to have a mutual understanding about that. And when that happens, it's magical. And when it doesn't happen, they feel like you're trying to force something on them. Yeah, it matters. I mean, that phrase is interesting or, you know, that kind of sound bite. It almost doesn't matter that you as a rep know how it impacts their business. Don't get me wrong. It matters. But it matters much more that the customer knows how it impacts their business. Yeah, and, and, the, and the argument I would make is that if the customer realizes it and the rep doesn't, then the rep might not perceive their solution being as valuable as it might otherwise be. So when they both understand it, the client now says, wow, these people really understand me. And the rep says, you know what? My solution's worth a whole lot more now than I was thinking it was. Yeah. 
So sometimes it gives them their confidence when they're presenting their price because if I know that I'm solving a $10 million problem for you, I probably don't flinch at a $100,000 price tag. If I'm not sure how this is going to impact you, then the $100,000 might scare me. You're going to drop your pants, yeah. Yeah, and I might apologize for the price instead of confidently presenting it. What other tidbits or insights have you gleaned in this research? I mean, we, we, we're constantly putting out new research. You know, every two weeks or so, we put out a new article. Um, the most recent one we did was on the concept of team selling. And we analyzed what effect it had when there were multiple participants joining a web conference or like a sales call from both the buyer side of the organization and the seller side of the organization. And what we found here is that if at some point during the sales cycle, you as a sales rep can get your sales manager to show up to one call, you are 258% more likely to close that deal. Again, this is an average. I'm not saying the next deal you get your sales manager to show up on, you're for sure going to close. Wait, 200 and what? 258% higher win rates yeah. in deals where a sales manager showed up to a call during the sales cycle compared to deals that the rep flew solo 100% of the time. So team selling is kind of a big deal, although there is a little bit of a caveat there. If there are multiple participants on a sales call on the selling side of the organization during a discovery call, win rates actually go down. I can't explain why that is. I have a few theories. So it's best to do discovery calls by yourself and then set up your next call or set of calls to get somebody within your organization to join the call with you, whether that's like a demo call or a sales presentation on average, across the data set we analyzed, which was, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a little over 21,000 sales opportunities, 258% more likely to close the deal. Um, on the other side, if you get multiple buyers to show up to your sales call at some point in the sales cycle, compared to only having one buyer on every call you have, you're 32% more likely to close the deal. That's significant. That's interesting. But I was kind of stunned to find having multiple participants on your side of the table having such a higher impact on close rates compared to having multiple participants on the buyer side of the table. So that's like an example of the most recent one uh, we've done. We are continually doing more. So how do people get insight into for their own teams what kind of behaviors are working, which ones aren't working. And one of the things I write about in my, my latest trends article is that people used to think of machine learning and AI as futuristic, and now it's very much in the present and available today. So what can people do to get better insight into the behaviors that are working versus not working? Well, I think the fundamental core is you need visibility into your sales conversations because the fact is that most sales leaders and most sales managers are pretty blind to the sales conversations that are taking place across their sales team. And that's particularly true for bigger sales organizations. And that's why this whole performance gap between top reps and middle of the pack reps has been such a stubborn problem. Because if you buy into the argument I made earlier, which is sales conversations are the key separator before top between top reps and everybody else then there's your problem. You cannot close the gap between these two groups 
if you're blind to the sales conversations that are taking place, if sales conversations are the key difference between them. Uh, there's just nothing you can do to influence them. You can't scale the best practices of your top reps if you're blind to sales conversations. And you can't course correct what your middle of the pack reps are doing poorly if you're blind to what they're doing. And usually there are, there are three ways um, to get visibility into sales conversations. And I don't, you know, want to come across as promotional, so I'll be pretty light about this. But the first one is just raw call recordings. Um, prospecting teams are usually do this approach very successfully, uh, like sales development teams using tools like SalesLoft or Outreach or uh, InsideSales.com. It tends to work very well for them. Mm -hmm. um, sh account executive teams usually fail miserably at using raw call recordings, by the way. Uh, and the reason is the reps that need coaching the most almost always forget to hit the damn record button on GoToMeeting or WebEx. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're usually long calls. The second approach is just live shadowing your reps. And that approach works if you have a pretty small sales team. You know, if you have four or five reps or less than that, uh, you can probably hear what your reps are doing within earshot because you probably sit in the trenches with them. But I'm guessing if your team is that small, visibility isn't really a problem you're dealing with anyway. And then the third and final approach, and I'll you know keep this toned down, is this new category of technology that Gong is pioneering, which is conversation intelligence technology. And it's software that records sales calls, transcribes them from, from speech to text, and analyzes them with machine learning. I got to believe that it's about anybody listening right now is saying, you know what? Maybe I give this thing a shot. And is there a way that they can try it? How does it, how does it work if someone says, yeah, you know what? I want to see what this can actually do for us. Yeah. So here's my favorite thing is when people hear machine learning or AI, they're usually like, oh, this sounds like some complicated piece of software and we're going to need like professional services. Not the case at all with, with at least this category of software. So you're more than welcome to have a 14-day free pilot period. You do have to talk to our sales team to you know make sure – it's going to make sense for you and for us to be doing business, but it takes about five minutes to set up. So all you do is you'll create an account with our sales team. Uh, you'll invite your team and you'll pretty much be up and running from there. Now, getting the insights and the data is a little bit of a different story. You're going to have to of course. collect sales calls over a period of time. Usually it's around 200 hours worth, but um, I would urge anybody who's, you know, if your gut Ian was right, and there are people interested in giving it a try. Head over to gong.io, G-O-N-G.io, and request a demo, and we can get you set up with a pilot pilot fairly quickly. Chris, what's the best way for people to reach you, to contact you, and follow what's going on at Gong? I'm assuming gong.io for the company, but how should people uh, how should people connect with you as well? Yeah, I would suggest a couple ways. So the first way is if you're interested in keeping tabs on new research we put out when we analyze sales conversations, subscribe to our blog. You can do that by going to gong.io slash blog and entering your email into the email bar at the top. That's G-O-N-G dot I-O slash blog. And the second way is connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, and we also publish about 80% of all of our research on my own LinkedIn profile in the form of a Pulse article. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search my name, Chris Orlob, C-H-R-I-S-O-R-L-O-B. If you put in your connection request that you heard me talk on this podcast, I'll accept your invite 
Um, if you don't put that in there, I may or may not accept. Um, but uh, yeah, th- those are probably the two best ways to keep up to date with what's going on with Gong and me. No, that's great, Chris. I really appreciate it. And by the way, it's a great lesson for people. I, I don't I don't remind people enough to when you're connecting to somebody on LinkedIn, always send the note, always give some additional information. I get a ton of what I would call just spam LinkedIn requests yeah. that I ignore. And occasionally someone will say, oh, I sent you a request. And I'll say, well, did you, did you include a note? No. Well, that's probably why I didn't accept it. <laughs> so because um, there's just so many people trolling out there. It's a mess. So, Chris, I, I really appreciate you sharing this insight. I think it's it's cool stuff. And um, and I think it just opens opens the opportunity for so much more insight than people have gotten in the past. So thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me on. Man, Chris shared some great information. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can use and apply right away. Remember, there's a small subset of people who are top performers, so we need to understand what moves the needle for them. And Chris shared that it's not about the number of meetings or the number of phone calls. Instead, it's about the types of conversations. Top performers ask more questions And they ask more questions about the pain and problems more so than talking about themselves. Chris and I also talked about the idea that the top performers speak about business issues more so than technical issues. And remember, in team selling, though not on the first call, on subsequent calls, if you bring other people in, it dramatically increases your outcomes. Remember, this show gets the direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic you think I should cover or a guest I should have on the show, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.